Welcome to the Community Empowerment Fund, or CEF's Time and Talents podcast. I'm Lizzie Kramer. I'm Lily Levin. And we're both advocates at CEF, and we'll be guiding you through today's episode on all things housing during corona, featuring information about evictions, about court, landlords, and resources for folks who are housing insecure right now. Here's Rosa Green to tell us a little bit more about what CEF does. Hi, it's Rosa Green, the Office and Community Organizer for the CEF Durham office. So Rosa, can you explain a little bit what is CEF? CEF is a nonprofit geared towards a community of financially independent whole people. And can you explain a little bit about what Time and Talents is and why we're doing it? Time and Talents is a member-led advocacy platform um, where CEF provides the resources and a safe space for members to advocate around things that they find important in their community. Um, And now we're turning it into a podcast um, because, of course, we want to be safe and socially distanced. We also wanted to get a member perspective of how housing has been impacted by COVID and kind of what housing and eviction looks like. So we interviewed Lorraine Williams, one of our CEF members, to tell her to know. How has COVID impacted your housing experience? I usually work during the summer working with children, but this summer I I act out because I I can't sanitize stuff in a way where it's going to be safe for them and safe for me. It's, It's cutting my financial situation down since I can't work, mentally challenging, well, it's emotionally challenged because I'm, I'm not doing what I usually do for the summer. Mm-hmm. And I'm just a little bit out of sorts. What are some of the major challenges you've faced in this time, I think? Well, one of the challenges that I face, um, going to the grocery store, um, some people don't wear masks, you know, and, and I get paranoid because of germs, you know, I got mm-hmm. plastic gloves, <laughs> I, I got masks, I got safety glasses. When I first went out, I put on all of that because I didn't know what to expect. So I realized I didn't have to have my safety glasses on, so I stopped wearing those. The, the, the challenges is people in the grocery store, you don't stand by what? six feet, you know, away before you get weighted on. And have you received help or aid from anyone or any agencies, like our services during this whole process? And like, how did you get connected with them? Oh, I, I dialed 211. It's a uh, help desk, the city of Durham. And mm-hmm. I told them uh, I'm a senior citizen. I'm st- Sick in my house, you know. I had just like a, a mild cold. Couldn't go to the grocery store. I was scared to go out. So they brought me food. Mm-hmm. They actually went grocery shopping. Well, it's an organization that um, works through the city of Durham, and they called a person in one of the churches, called me, and asked me what I needed. And then they grocery shopping, they brought the food, and I put my basket on the porch and they put the groceries in the basket and then I pulled the basket back in the house. Mm-hmm. And that was really nice. I I said, whoa. <laughs> so they try to take care of the senior citizen mm-hmm. that is sick and shut in. They bring me fruits and vegetables like twice a month. I don't have to go to the grocery store and get logged down with a bunch of groceries and bring it home. But I have to go to the grocery store to get eggs and milk and juice, you know. So. 
that the fruits and vegetables is spread. So what have you like seen within your within your own community, people sort of stepping up to people in, in my community not they walk around and, and sit in their, their yard and they have like little gatherings and they cook out but they don't put masks on mm-hmm. while they sitting around in their yard you know and they have guests i'm afraid to go out when they outside i'll i'll just go back and um i live in like a a duplex so if the lady next door is out on her porch entertaining i don't go outside until they leave because too many people out have you noticed any of your friends or like neighbors or people you know have they been struggling with housing during this time as well or have you seen more people struggling with housing less yeah this lady friend that i know actually she lost two apartments because she didn't have enough money to pay so Mm -hmm. she had to go stay in a rooming house and then she lost the job so then she was homeless, and she's staying with another person now. I, I let her stay with me for a month, but I'm on Section 8. Can't have nobody stay with me. Mm-hmm. But um, she's been struggling trying to keep a job, you know. I, I got a little extra cash. I, I buy her stuff that I know she needs, like toilet paper, eggs, juice, and stuff, because it's, it's hard, you know. Try to help her out every once in a while when I have extra money, but it's tough to see people not being able to work and and you don't have a check to come in. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm lucky. I'm on Social Security. I try to deal with the money that I got, and if I can't help my friends, you know, that's in the situation. How do you feel like the leaders of your community have been doing, like dealing with the housing crisis and the pandemic, like sort of? I I actually know a lady that works in the community, and she working with um, McDougal Terrace. Mm-hmm. She used to live there before, and but now she's a grown woman, got kids and everything. She goes back and try to make sure the people don't get evicted because you paying a, a little amount of money because of public housing. Mm-hmm. But she advocate for them, making sure they don't evict nobody because mm-hmm. they don't have the money to pay for the rent. They passed the law in in the city that you can't evict people because they don't have money, because they lost the job. Not just because they messing up their money, but if you lost your job, the landlord can't evict you. And if you late paying your rent, you can't charge a late fee. So that's that's one of the things that she doing um, advocating for the the residents that don't know, you know. So you, you you can't get kicked out because you lost your job. You can't pay your money, and you can't get kicked out because you're late paying your rent. Next, we talked to Kevin Atkins about his relationship with landlords and public housing in the Durham area. My name is Kevin Atkins. I'm the housing access coordinator at CEF. Uh, my position is pretty much to do all things housing for um, all the housing providers in the Durham CLC. Um, and that's basically just engaging landlords, creating new relationships, and, you know, trying to uh, increase the affordable the amount of affordable units in Durham for the homeless population, also the lower income population. How do you see Durham's housing issues fitting into the national picture of housing issues? Um, I think the housing issue in Durham is also the same, you know, throughout the country. 
Um, there is not a lot of affordable housing options for you know people who need it, um, people who need lower income housing um, and subsidized housing. So I think Durham is just a part of that. Um, Durham is growing, you know, fairly quickly. Um, it's getting gentrified, and you know that's causing an increase in property taxes, which also increases you know the monthly rent amount. How do you cultivate relationships with landlords in the Durham area? Um, I do that by, you know, just getting out there, um, you know, introducing myself, kind of letting them know what the initiatives that we're doing. Um, also, um, using the landlord relationship that we already have established from the past um, and just kind of banking on that, using their good feedback from the programs that, um, that we partner with and that they house people with and just using them as a, a marketing tool, I guess you can say, um, and just trying to figure out how we can make our relationships with our landlords better. Um, you know, it. And how have those relationships been important during the time of COVID? They've been just as important, if not more important during COVID, just because uh, we saw a flux of people that went from the shelter to this hotel arrangement that the city created. Um, which created um, a large number of people that needed housing like immediately. Um, um, so COVID situation really increased our relationship with landlords because we needed more units like immediately opposed to, you know, kind of stretching out the process over time. Can you tell us a bit about what the Landlord Incentive Fund is? So the Landlord Incentive Fund is a policy that myself um, and CEF created through partnership with the city of Durham. And the incentive is basically what it is. It incentivizes our partnering landlords to continue to work with our clients and continue to house our clients. So it's a $700 incentive reward that landlords are able to receive once they approve one of our clients. And it's broken down into two payments. And that incentive fund is good for each client that they approve. So if one particular landlord approves, you know, four or five of our clients, they get that incentive fund each time. Um, landlords get involved you know, with this fund simply by just partnering with us and improving one of our clients. Could you also tell us a bit about the Housing First model? Housing First to me is a model that kind of also called rapid rehousing, which is um, a model that agencies are able to utilize that gives them funding to house clients as fast as possible, which means that they could have uh, X amount of dollars for a particular client to get them housed and what they can do is they can provide rental assistance or rental help to get that person housed immediately um housing first is something that was created to get people off the street and into housing very fast um and it definitely touches on the point of being able to t take that funding and stretching out for a long period of time so that a person can get into housing you know first um the challenges that i see with this model is that sometimes it doesn't promote long-term growth for the actual client, meaning that um, they may get into housing very quickly before they're able to secure employment or increase their income, which means that um, let's just say if a client is getting rental assistance for six months, if they are connected with a service provider, meaning that if they came through the homelessness system and they have, you know, caseworkers who are giving them support services during their tenancy, what some clients do is they reach out to those caseworkers or they reach out to that agency to say, hey, I'm struggling. I'm, I might be a little bit behind this month, um, X amount of dollars short. Could you guys help me? That could be always an option. But sometimes um, case services time out. Sometimes people are not connected to case management service, so they end up falling behind and not paying their rent.
And the hard part about it is once you get one month behind, that's kind of like the the end of it. Honestly, it's, it's very hard to catch up. I always advise for them to keep open communication with their landlord, um, even though they that may not prevent them from being evicted. But if they could communicate with the landlord prior to that rent payment doing due between the first and the fifth, they contact their landlord a couple of days before the first. That may be something that the landlord can work out with them. Now, I wouldn't say do that consistently, but if you have a situation where you're in an emergency and you know you're going to be short on funds, do not wait until the first or the fifth or the sixth to say, hey, I'm going to be behind. Reach out to that landlord prior to that. Thanks so much for being with us, Kevin. Any last thoughts on what you would like to see in Durham housing right now? I definitely would love to see more support for people that are facing evictions as far as finance. And I think a lot of funding that um, that these agencies get are, go, are geared towards getting people housed, which is always great. But I think that we, as a system, and especially in Durham, if we can emphasize that there are a lot of people that are facing evictions or um, sometimes just need a little bit more help from not being evicted, I think that'll be a great way to kind of ramp up our system. Um, in order to learn more about the details of the eviction process and the potential aid organizations along the way, we interviewed Jesse McCoy, a professor at Duke University and the supervising attorney for the Duke Law Civil Justice Clinic. McCoy is a Durham native and has practiced law in the area for years. Can you start by explaining some of the moratoriums around evictions right now? So there, there are two different moratoriums. If we're talking about the CARES Act moratorium, then the CARES Act moratorium prevents anybody receiving federal money or with a federally backed mortgage from being able to file until July 25th, right? That's more extensive than what the governor did. So Governor Cooper signed an executive order that covered from May the 30th to June the 20th, right? So up until May the 30th, Anybody can still file for evictions, assuming that you weren't a property covered by the Federal CARES Act. So there's a lot of people who are still filing. What the court system had done, because it had essentially slowed down operations, more so because of COVID-19 transmission, uh, the court system had been allowing landlords to continue with the filings, but they hadn't been scheduling court dates. So what you're seeing now is twofold. There's one that's a set of new evictions that are filed because the moratoriums are over. The other one is the rescheduling of the evictions that were filed prior to the moratorium from the governor. Uh, and so all these things are going to make hugely large dockets for the court system uh, and the people will largely have the same problem. So landlords essentially are put back in a position where they can move forward with uh, most of their evictions. Um, over the summer, we've had a couple of things that are, are unprecedented for our state and really for the nation. So we had two main pieces in North Carolina that affected tenants here, which were the CARES Act, which is the federal law that provided a moratorium on any um, housing that, that either had a federally backed mortgage or that accepted federal subsidy for the tenant's position there. Uh, and so that delayed any sort of um, eviction process until July 25th. Uh, on top of that, we also had a state moratorium. It was a lot shorter, and this delayed uh, evictions for the basis of failure to pay rent from a period of roughly about May 30th 
through June 20th. So essentially for June rent, people couldn't be evicted. Now, as you can tell, that leaves a lot of gap, right? So there are people who were having evictions that were filed prior to the governor's uh, moratorium. Uh, there were people whose vic evictions were already scheduled, but then had to be postponed. And then there are some people who they didn't have an eviction filed at all, but because of other um, related issues caused by COVID, uh, most most often lost wages, lost hours at work, lost job altogether, they have now accumulated rental deficits to landlords that... So where we are now is every moratorium that North Carolina was participating in is over. It's all done. But there is a gray area. And the gray area has to do with um, this failure to pay rent um, statute. So essentially, landlords have four bases for being able to evict in North Carolina. It could be failure to pay rent after a 10-day demand. It could be uh, failure to leave after a holdover, which just means that your lease expired and you're still there. It could be breach of the lease um, or it could be criminal activity. Right now, the thing that everybody wanted to protect was the failure to pay rent people because those are the folks who are affected by COVID. So essentially for June rent, if the basis of the eviction is June rent, there needs to be a negotiated six month plan. Um, whether or not people are actually using that and that's applying in court, is very different because the other flaw of the executive order is it expires in a definite period of time. So June 20th, the executive order expired. The gray area question is, do the terms of that order still carry forward even though the executive order is over? Um, as for everybody else, a private landlord who never had any involvement with the federal government, but for the, the governor's executive order, they were free to file evictions the whole time. Uh, if they are receiving a government subsidy, they're now free to file evictions as well. And that's what we're looking at across the nation is roughly about 24 million people who are at risk of being evicted without any kind of support right now. What rights do you have as a tenant when you are being evicted? So this is the difficult conversation. Um, one part of this is I never like for tenants to, to think that this is a one-way street. Landlords have duties and responsibilities to you as well. Landlords have to maintain a fit and habitable premises uh, for the entire time that you are renting there. So a lot of people who are, who are now facing eviction also have had issues with things like roach infestations, uh, structural integrity issues, plumbing issues, mold. Uh, if you've been documenting these issues, then they also can go into a process called rent abatement which is actually a discount on the rental value that the uh, landlord's claiming is owed. It may even be deemed an unfair and deceptive trade practice for which the landlord would be uh, subject to treble damages and have to pay you. So it, it really depends. The hard part though is for the vast majority of people who don't have those conditions and who are living in an otherwise adequate place but have lost their jobs and are just unable to pay, well, now there's no safety net anymore. So if the landlord can prove that you owe, I mean, if they can prove you owe even $1, let alone two months of rent, they win the case. Uh, the best hope that you typically have for that is either filing an appeal to delay it and posting a rent bond that will delay his ability to get a writ, uh, but that's gonna also require that you pay a rent bond to the court 
and some people aren't going to be able to afford that either. Other alternative is you can always move out, but this, um, most people haven't been tested for COVID-19. So what we're doing is essentially taking people who we know are housed right now and jeopardizing their housing, which is going to force them to go out on the open market to try to find somewhere else and to ultimately relocate if they are asymptomatic or they are a carrier of COVID-19, well, that's spreading the number of places that they're going to be interacting with folks. So this has a great potential and an alarm is really sounding about how evictions in and of themselves could be leading to another spread. Likewise with that, you know, there's always this battle that we, we kind of teeter between tenants and landlords. So can the government be used to mediate this back and forth? Government action is necessary in this situation because the government knows that many of the people who are unable to make their rent payments, it's due to no fault of their own. So it would seem that there should be um, government injection of money uh, in a way that protects people, even if they have to qualify for it, something that protects people from going through this. But right now, since we don't have that, then it just looks like it's going to be that tsunami of evictions. In the time of a pandemic, we have to be more pro-person than we are pro-property. Can you tell us a bit about legal aid and see and how they fit into all of this? So with Legal Aid in North Carolina, there are partners on the eviction diversion program in Durham County. If you're interested in pursuing legal aid, it's better to call sooner than later. Um, and I think you should call it. Usually the cases start off with the centralized intake unit. Uh, I believe that number is 1-866-219-5262. Uh, and somebody will call you back, process your claim, and evaluate whether or not uh, they're going to refer it over to one of the local offices across the state. Uh, once it gets referred, there's going to be an attorney there who will give you a call, do some preliminary investigation, and make a decision about representation. This is the issue, though, that people run into with legal aid. Um, the, the need for attorneys is very great. The number of legal aid attorneys is very small, right? So most of the people won't be able to get anything more than advice. I mean, in Durham County alone, we're dealing with roughly 850 eviction filings per month. They have about four attorneys there doing housing work. So there's just no way. Um, what we do through the Duke Civil Justice Clinic, we try to supplement in the areas where legal aid can't do it. So for people who may be slightly over the income threshold for legal aid and don't qualify, we're able to take those cases. Um, for people who may be undocumented, legal aid can't take those cases, we can. Um, uh, so the vast majority of the people who come through the pipeline just for Durham County still won't get an attorney. And that's why it's important to know what your rights are, to know how to advocate for yourself when you have situations like structural integrity issues, uh, understanding what code enforcement does and how to contact them. Can you tell us a bit more about the Durham Housing Authority housing vouchers? So if we're talking about like traditional housing choice voucher programs, uh, housing choice voucher program is a program administered by the Durham Housing Authority. And what they do is they have a running kind of estimate for what the value of rental should be given the dimensions of an apartment for every year. They do an evaluation. 
And depending on what that is, if you find somebody who's willing to participate in the program as a landlord, uh, what they do is they'll sign a contract with the housing authority to charge a rate that's very close, very comparable to what the housing authority has deemed to be the value. And the housing authority will pay a large portion of that rental through a check or what people call a subsidy. Sometimes that subsidy can be 100% of the rental value, but most times that subsidy is more like 70 to 80% of the rental value and the tenant is on the hook for their portion. The protection that you get from this from a legal perspective is if for some reason the housing authority messes up, they're not paying their part, they're not paying their subsidy in a timely manner, well, technically, the participant, the tenant, can't be penalized for that. Um, what often happens, though, in situations like what we're seeing now, there's going to be people who they relied on their job for that fractional portion of the rent that they were going to have to pay. So if your hours got cut or you don't have that job anymore. So the fear here is that people who are otherwise holding vouchers uh, will start being evicted just because of the way that the economy works in light of COVID. What do you typically advise people bring with them if they have to go to court for eviction? So the main things to bring usually are going to be uh, items or letters that the landlord submits. The dates of those letters become increasingly important. Uh, if you have a code enforcement inspection, uh, the date of that inspection is important. Uh, even though it's a 12-month look-back period in the statute, doesn't necessarily mean that the magistrate is going to give a lot of credence to it. I think that typically the closer you are in time between the eviction and um, the, the complaining act, the more likely you're going to win that, uh, as opposed to if the landlord waited seven months before they did anything. Still could be retaliatory, but court may not look at it that way. The only thing that some savvy landlords are able to do to get around this um, this concept of holding. Where do you typically refer folks who have been evicted or find themselves housing insecure or homeless? I, I think the main places that I generally refer people to, uh, there's an organization called Housing for New Hope. Um, and, and I'll say, just like I was talking about with legal aid and with our clinic, all of these places are dealing with a huge demand and very limited supply. So oftentimes folks get frustrated because they'll call over and there may not necessarily be a placement for them. But I always recommend Housing for New Hope. Um, if you are a veteran, uh, Volunteers uh, for America, uh, they also have things. Now, of, so, of course, with veteran stuff, some people serve just the veteran. Some people serve the veteran and their family. So you have to find out kind of which organizations do what. Um, but for regular people, I think it's about calling DHA. Again, not happy news there either because the wait list for DHA is often about four years. Um, uh, what you see a lot in Durham is a lot of people end up like just couch surfing with a relative or somebody they know. And even that has problems because if you're couch surfing and that relative is also renting, then they likely have a clause in their lease that says they're not allowed to have unauthorized occupants in the place. So it now jeopardizes their rental relationship with the landlord and puts them at risk for eviction as well. 
So what typically happens is in Durham County, particularly, we have a, something called a continuum of care. And that's a partnership of many different agencies that provide many different support services. Well, in order to get the services or access the services from the continuum of care, you have to be able to show and prove that you actually need them. So what generally happens is people will go to the shelter after they've exhausted all other resources, call family, call friends, don't have help. When they go to the shelter, they're shocked to find out that all the beds at the shelter are taken. Right. So when all the beds are taken, they're usually given a letter uh, or a referral into the continuum of care system of programs. Now, depending on where you are in that system, there are a lot of different service providers. So, for instance, Alliance Behavioral Health has their own housing program, but their housing program is based on people who have come through a medical referral for some kind of behavioral illness or some kind of substance abuse how do these dynamics play out within the existing social and racial inequalities of our society so um well a couple things i think the first thing is i would be remiss in my duty if i didn't talk about the fact that this is only exacerbating um the the great social inequality that we have in our communities and what I and so the reason there's a, his, a whole history of reasons why that is, right? So we're talking about people who historically were uh, inhibited from being able to access capital for ownership, because if you own, you can't be evicted, right? Um, we're also talking about people who have oftentimes been at the lowest rung of the, the economy when it comes to employment. So your wage earners, your, your waitresses, your fast food workers, your people working at the mall, like those folks aren't necessarily protected and they're oftentimes living check to check, even paying upwards of 50% of their monthly income for rent. And what I've seen is a lot of examples of communities coming together to make a unified stand. So, and then you see like there's a big um, rent strike movement going on in the Northeast. Um, the concept being that if we all stop paying rent, the landlord can't evict us all, right? North Carolina, the rules are kind of different for that. But at the same time, anything done in mass uh, will have some degree of an effect. And I think it definitely hurts the pockets and it will definitely encourage people to make government act, even if it's not necessarily in the tenant's favor. Any last thoughts for our listeners? My, my main point is make sure you vote, <laughs> make sure you register if you haven't done so already. Um, make sure that you take an assessment of everything in your unit that has gone wrong and see if it's a habitability concern. And lastly, if you find yourself in a bond and you're being evicted and you're in Durham County, then contact us through the eviction diversion program um, and we will try our best to try to get you some assistance, get you some help, uh, or provide a legal defense for you in the cases where that's necessary. We also interviewed Janine from the Department of Social Services. My name is Janine Gordon. I am the Assistant Director for Aging and Adult Services within the Department of Social Services. Um, so within my division, we have Adult Protective Services, we have Guardianship, we have Special Assistant in-home, we have a Home Center Care Unit, we have Crisis Services, we have a Rental Team, we have um, the Hopper Program, we have uh, non-emergency medical transportation, um, 
And we also have a program called Group Care Monitoring, which is an arm of the state that helps to license and um, investigate and monitor those um, adult care home and family care homes in Durham County. What do you have to do to receive service from DSS? One of the programs that we also offer, and I omitted in the beginning, unfortunately, is that we're also um, the portal of entry called Entry uh, Entry Point right, here. Yeah. Uh, we are the portal of entry into the homeless services system. Um, and during that, uh, you know, during that interview and assessment process, um, we really are trying to help even the individuals who are um, experiencing homelessness during this pandemic to try to get them to the right place based on their housing needs. What is DSS doing to address community need in terms of housing in this time of COVID, especially since, you know, um, some moratoriums have been lifted and people are kind of struggling to find housing? Um, So at the end of uh, FY20, the Board of County Commissioners had allocated $90,000 to address that. Um, and it was split into um, two pots of money, if you will, one directly for eviction diversion and the other one kind of for that distressed tenant that had not yet quite reached the uh, eviction stage, but may have other issues that are contributing to their housing uh, crisis. So it may not be rent, but it might be uh, utilities. It might be, you know, I can't pay my, if I pay my car payment, then I can't pay my rent. Um, and. Those were um, dollars that were really designated uh, from the other crisis services dollars that um, my division assists the community with. Uh, So I'm sure you can imagine that uh, $90,000 probably didn't uh, go very far. Um, Of the $50,000 for uh, the COVID eviction diversion funds, we spent $110,900. So obviously we kind of overspent there Mm-hmm. But um, the need was great, and the need continues to be great. Um, at this point, uh, Durham County is partnering with the city of Durham, uh, and we are working on a, a um, CDBG COVID uh, grant to help with emergency rental assistance. This is huge um, because we will be ha- helping as many families as we can um with rent or uh, utility assistance, whatever that need is, um, for the possibility of up to three months uh, for a maximum of $6,000. So um, we're really excited about this. Uh, It's already gone through city council. It's uh, coming up on the joint city uh, county committee meeting on the 11th of August. So we're really ready for this program to reach out and help individuals. Obviously, we work with landlords, we work with uh, um, Legal Aid of North Carolina to try and make sure that if there's any way to prevent that eviction, that we are doing What documents do you need to bring with you to receive emergency funding from DSS um, if an eviction like were to happen? The first thing I would say is that you need to establish residency in Durham County, um, and that could be... Um, a bill, it could be, you know, anything that kind of puts you in Durham County and establish you as a resident for 90 days. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, you have to show your income. You know, we are assisting those who are at 150% of the federal poverty level. So that's uh, those individuals who are really in that low wealth 
category. Uh, we, you also have to show that you have a sustainable income. That's not a requirement, however, for the, um, the, con the contract that we have with the city. Um, sustainable income can be a variety of things. It doesn't have to necessarily be just a full-time job. It also could be you know, unemployment and things like that. They must meet the definition of a financial emergency, which in COVID, I mean, we're kind of meeting that mm -hmm. already. Um, you, you do have to uh, show proof of how income was spent and you have to provide the, the notice, uh, whatever that may be, that you need assistance. You don't actually have to call if you need service. Um, if you come to the building, we do have um, the ability to use phones within the building and we have applications paper applications readily available at the front of our uh, office, at the front of our building. So whatever uh, it is that you might want to apply for, um, you can either get information or you can actually get an application packet. Um, so ho however it is that you need to apply, whether it's online, whether it's on a telephone, or whether it's just picking up a paper packet, we wanna be as available and accessible to our community as possible and still make sure that we are ensuring the safety of our clients and our staff. Does funding that DSS provide, does it vary based on specific instances? Is there a limit to how much funding you can give or a minimum requirement as well? There are limits to certain, again, we kind of have things divided up into pots of money. Um, right. There are certain limits to different pots of money because they are not large pots of money. Uh, so we wanna make sure that um, that we're helping as many people as possible. You know, for certain programs, the what we call the emergency assistance programs are limited to $200 uh, every mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a federally funded program that is specific to families. Um, and there are some additional requirements for that. And that has a possibility of going up to uh, $400. Um, and then we also have our opening doors program and our standard eviction diversion program and this contract that's coming up. And for opening doors, we um, also have a limit on that. It's about $750. And that is really specific for those individuals who are um, at risk of being in that unsheltered homeless category or are homeless and maybe in a shelter or maybe in a rapid rehousing situation and they want to get permanent housing. Um, we're working with those uh, community providers to try to help that person kind of jump the hurdle of, of um, first month's rent or security deposits and things like that. Are the eviction diversion funds and the emergency funds from DSS, do they came, come from the same like pool of money or are they specific like pots of money? There are specific pots of money that are intended for a specific group of people. Right. Okay. Right. So, you know, eviction diversion is a pot of money that is only designated for eviction diversion. Opening doors is just for opening doors. How have services of DSS altered during COVID? Have you seen an increase in need? How have you been responding to that? We have absolutely seen an increase in need. And, you know, for us, it is responding and being uh, a robust program that is flexible and is able to address whatever is happening in the community. Um, we work closely with um, our finance department. We work closely uh, with informing the Board of County Commissioners of what's happening. 
I so I know we've we've kind of advised um CF members to call DSS around seven thirty a.m. um and to call that appointment line. But our question is like, what is DSS doing to serve the population of people who don't receive an appointment via the appointment line, and how is DSS serving people who don't call that hotline, um, that number nine zero nine five six zero eight zero zero zero, um, or may not have access to a phone or can't call at seven thirty in the morning. So you don't just have to call at 7.30 in the morning. Okay. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. Um, and you don't actually have to call if you need service. Um, if you come to the building, we do have um, the ability to use phones within the building. And we have applications, paper applications, readily available at the front of our uh, office, at the front of our building. So whatever... Uh, it is that you might want to apply for, um, you can either get information or you can actually get an application packet. However it is that you need to apply, whether it's online, whether it's on a telephone, or whether it's just picking up a paper packet, we want to be as available and accessible to our community as possible and still make sure that we are ensuring the safety of our clients and our staff. Hi, this is Lily again. Um, Lizzie and I just want to thank everyone who we recorded in this podcast. Kevin, Jesse, Rosa, Lorraine, and Janine. Thank you all so much for participating. Thank you for the members who are listening to this podcast. For anyone who's listening to this podcast, to learn more information about what we do, you can go to www.communityempowermentfund.org. Thanks so much, and we hope to see you in the office sometime soon.